Hello, welcome to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Better Outcomes Show. I'm your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions. If you're new, thanks for showing up. Thanks for giving us a little bit of your time. Hopefully, by the end of this episode, you'll be hooked. <laughs> um, if you're a returning listener, thanks, guys, for sharing the show, for spreading it around your networks with your friends. It helps people find us. It helps expand our reach and uh, help us fulfill our mission, which is helping clinicians and healthcare organizations improve the service delivery that they offer to their patients and their clients. In line with that, our guest this week, or my guest this week, is a guy named Craig Solid. He's a PhD, and his job is not like most of the other folks we've had on the show. Much of the of the the content recently has been around how do we leverage technology or how do we leverage nature in, in one of these last episodes or understanding a biopsychosocial model and how does that impact the way we deliver care or how we um, how does it inform the decision the clinical decision making that we have around delivering care specifically to patients. Craig's job he's a consultant and what he really helps his clients do is justify the return on investment for quality improvement initiatives. Now that sounds super, super dry, I understand, because no one wants to talk about investment and return on investment and all the bland statistics that go into making changes at a healthcare organization. But if you think about it, it really is a very, very important part of the healthcare system, right? Like if if a quality improvement measure doesn't get implemented, then the quality doesn't improve, right? The service delivery doesn't improve. And sometimes, depending on the stakeholders involved, you need to prove that what you're doing is going to be financially viable, financially acceptable in the long run, in insofar as you know, getting some of those stakeholders on board. So Craig and I had a, a long conversation about just what is value in healthcare? Like how do you measure it? And again, value is very subjective. So what? who are the stakeholders involved in this decision and how are they looking at the situation or how are they looking at the proposal you're putting forward in regards to the value that it might provide to the organization? Because there are some things that are highly valuable and very intangible or hard to objectively measure. And then there are some things that are that might be very tangible and objectively measured for some stakeholders, but not to the end user, which might be the patient, right? So we have a conversation around all of that. How do we measure value? What is value? How do we prove that what we're going to do or, or what we're proposing to do is going to have a real objective outcomes? And and how do we how do we get it all work to work, right? Like how do we get all of the stakeholders that might be involved involved in the decision making and then on board with implementing whatever quality improvement initiative or change that we want to to put forward. So hopefully you find some value in this conversation that you take some practical tidbits away when it comes to justifying things you might want to do to higher ups or if you're in the higher up position to justifying it to stakeholders. Uh, Without further ado, here's Craig Solid talking about uh, return on investment and the value in healthcare. 
Hey, Craig, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. For those who don't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself, the work you do, and then the book that we're going to be discussing, which is all about return on investment, right? Sure. I, uh, I'm an independent consultant in the healthcare field. I work with physicians, uh, nonprofit organizations, uh, anyone who's doing research or quality improvement. And most of what I do relates to aspects of data and measurement and evaluation one of which is the financial evaluation or return on investment. So um, I recently published a book. It's called Return on Investment for Healthcare Quality Improvement. And it really is kind of a guide for how do you determine what's the financial return for either what we're planning on doing or what we have already done. Yeah. And when you're talking quality improvement, you're talking everything that covers things from you know, the effectiveness or the procedures of healthcare delivery all the way through to like patient experience and satisfaction, right? Yeah, really anything and everything. Anything that, that an organization or a provider or a facility or a health system wants to do to improve some aspect of care that might be, you know, internally focused so that it's efficiency, you know, reducing waste. It might be patient focused, you know, improving patient outcomes or their experience. Uh, often it's, it's related to some federally, you know, monitoring program or, or some, you know, national quality measures, but not always. So it, it kind of runs the gamut. Yeah. Yeah. Cause some, sometimes you've got the government coming out and saying, well, you've got to do X, Y, Z. And sometimes it's just organizations trying to improve, right? Yep. That's exactly right. So, and we were, while well, I was reading through your book here, at least the first couple chapters and in it, you start, you talk about, and you start the book talking about this whole move away from a fee-for-service model or a fee-for-service payment system in healthcare, especially like here in the U.S. where Medicare and CMS are, are beginning to try to move more towards a value-based system of reimbursement. What do you mean when you say a value-based system for those people that, that might not be uh, aware? That, great question. So um, at least how uh, Medicare has defined it is they are starting to link reimbursement for physicians and for hospitals and providers to how um, these groups perform on specific quality measures. So they will look at the rate of rehospitalization within 30 days for a given hospital and they'll compare that to every, every other hospital. And depending on where they fall, they may get a little bit of a bonus, they may receive less. So they're trying to tie the quality um, measure to the actual reimbursement. So there are all sorts of you know, complicated factors that go into that and there are discussions that go on about is that appropriate, and when is that appropriate and how can you can really compare there. But you know, that, that's how Medicare thinks of it. In sort of the larger uh, scope of value, it, it's really, it's really intended to be more patient focused. So what is the health of the patient after they have care, after they have been in the hospital and how do you measure that? And, and, and what do you do about that? So instead of just reimbursing based on, we did these tests and we did these procedures and we gave this diagnosis, really trying to think more sort of holistically about, well, how, how did the patient do? What was their experience? How, how's their health now? And that's a really hard thing to measure and to quantify and to compare. And so often, 
you know, value-based healthcare is sort of thrown around as a, as a catch-all um, when it might mean very different things to very different people, because obviously that care means different to the patient and their family than it does to the provider. And it means something still different to the payer who's actually, you know, paying for that service. So it, it, it can mean a lot of different things depending on your perspective. Yeah, because in and of itself, value is subjective, right? So, right. you know, you bring up in the book, and it makes total sense. Like, the the payers, and you mentioned this, the payers are really wanting to pay for an outcome, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's their value. They're, they're, it's almost like a merit-based payment system if they had their way. Yep. The patients or the, the, the ultimate end users or receivers of the healthcare services are wanting whatever kind of benefit they're perceiving as important, whether it be like a reduction in pain or a positive experience. And then the clinicians themselves or the internal stakeholders delivering on those services have their own, you know, their own metrics in their, in their mind of what constitutes value-based care. So talk a little bit about that idea of value and its subjectivity and how maybe a, an administrator might look at it differently than a patient or even a payer would. Well, sure. I mean, you're right. It, value is subjective and it's, it's highly dependent on your perspective. So, you know, a patient, you know, what do they value in terms of care? They want to, they want to feel better. They want to have higher quality of life. Um, and if you ask them, well, what's that worth to them? They probably won't be able to answer that. Um, that's a very difficult thing for them to answer, especially in our healthcare system where they don't typically have a sense of what anything costs. So it can be very difficult to, to quantify and, um, you know, put an exact number on how a patient might value something, but they certainly value it differently than say a provider who, you know, they want to serve their patient, but they also are cognizant of the budgets that they have to sort of work within. Um, and if you were to ask them what's high value care, they would probably talk about processes within their own facility. Uh, efficiencies, um, you know, uh, reductions of waste, the ability to, you know, uh, uh, ensure that uh, the patient gets the right, um, the, the, the right care that, when they need it. So um, it really becomes uh, a conversation about who are we talking about? And, and, then a, and then a payer, like you said, same thing. They're interested in the utilization that people have how often they go to the physician, how often they have to, how long they have to stay in, in the hospital. And they're interested in actually reducing that to some extent. So they're perhaps willing to pay for something up front if they see the value in it in terms of it reducing um, care down the road. Yeah. Well, and just looking at some of the research out there, definitely the move is getting away from this fee-for-service model and more towards a value-based model. I think one of the the quotes in your book is that one of the projections is that uh, 75% of uh, payers and insurance groups in general are moving more towards like a value-based arrangement, right? So how are they figuring it out or navigating those waters if it is so disparate depending on the stakeholder? Is this kind of uh, an initiative that third-party payers are kind of plowing ahead or in your experience, has there been some conversation with the other stakeholders at, at, you know, at play? No, I, th- I think this is one of the main problems is there's not a shared vernacular when people talk about value-based care. And so private payers have their own definition. They don't necessarily always share that, but they will use the, fr- they will use the phrase and, you know, 
it's reasonable to assume that they mean some combination of better patient experience, better patient outcomes, uh, and at the same time, better efficiency, reduced waste, you know, sort of, so, so some combination of both sides, which really just kind of makes it even that much harder to sort of quantify it because now you're, you're trying to mix different perspectives into the same conversation. But across the industry, it really is something where, where, where it feels like people have said, hey, this is a good idea. Let's push forward and do it and kind of figure it out as we go. So, um, you know, depending on who you talk to, they're gonna have a different sense of what this means and also a different sense of how um, important it is and, and where it can be applied and where it may not be able to be applied. Yeah, and even outside of the payers too, there's more of the drive. I've been saying it for years that, you know, the internet came and mm-hmm. patients became became much more aware of at least their options. And even in your book, you say, you know, quote, patients on the other hand are demanding more of their care experience and encounters, including the recent push for price transparency. Whether they realize it or not, they're really pushing for a better understanding of the value of the care they are receiving. So talk yeah. a little bit about that and how this shift of, you know, for a while it's it's been healthcare has been driven by the administrators by the payers, but now we've got this other complication, which is the end user is mm-hmm. finally starting to have a little bit of, of say, right? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting dynamic. And, and you know, the, the history of, of the healthcare expense in this country, a lot of people will tell you what's, what's driven how expensive it is, is really the, the, the price. Um, it, it, prices have, have risen dramatically, uh, in part, some would say, because patients, the users, are kind of price insensitive because they don't necessarily see the price. They pay their, um, you know, premiums and they go to the physician and they maybe have a copay, but they don't really see how much something costs. And even physicians often, you, if you were to ask them, well, if I need an MRI, how much is that going to cost? Most likely they're going to say, I have no idea. That's the billing department. So there's been this, you know, lack of price transparency and that's really driven it and i think you know patients are demanding better experiences and they're also trying to understand well what am i actually paying for uh you see news reports of people getting these sort of surprise huge bills and things like that and that's that's the extreme case when they had no idea um what it would cost and then they look at the bill and they see you know some outrageous price for an, an aspirin or something like that and and of course they would never have uh, decided to do that. And from an economist standpoint, that's an incredibly inefficient, you know, use of those funds. Um, you know, the hypothetical for an economist is to say, well, one way to test its efficiency is to say, pretend you were to give that money to the patient, how much of that would they actually spend on that care and how much would they pocket themselves? And so if you do that, a lot of times you find a lot of this is from an economist standpoint, pretty inefficient, but you know, patients are pushing for, for better experiences. And, and, you know, some would say across the board, individuals are pushing for better experiences in whatever they do, whatever they're consuming across the economy. Um, but providers are now finding that they're going to have, that they're having to deal with, you know, comments on Facebook and Twitter and, you know, reactions of patients um, and the sort of word of mouth that goes along with that. So, they're understanding that the value is not just driven by the outcome that they can report to a federal agency or to a payer, but they're also in some ways more accountable to patients 
because they know that those patients are going to then talk to other potential patients and, and there's going to be sort of a groundswell of, of, okay, well, what's, what's this worth? Where's the value in this for me? Yeah. Well, and you know, even some of the research coming out in the, on the clinical side of things, as far as clinical outcomes and satisfaction with care, you would, as a clinician, anyways, I would tend to think like, oh, you know, if I've got great technical skills and I can, you know, get some kind of positive outcome, clinical measurable outcome, objective measure improvement for my patients, they're going to have a positive experience and they'll rate me well. But you go back and look at the literature, they are very much hinged on the interpersonal interactions or, you know, like the, the intangibles is what patients really weigh oftentimes more than the technical skills of their clinician. Yes. Well, and, and, you know, these days too, and I don't really touch on this in the book, but you know, the, the social determinants of care and the access to care, um, is a huge aspect of, of the value of the overall healthcare system. And it's one that, you know, hasn't received a lot of attention until the last, you know, several years. So the, the interaction and the intangibles that you talk about, there's a lot in terms of value to, to sort of explore as it relates to you know, vulnerable populations, underserved populations, those with, with less access to care, uh, whether it's because of geography or socioeconomic status or whatever, um, it is a really big deal. And, and right now with everything happening and, and, the, and the advance of telemedicine, there's even more sort of disparities being identified. There's sort of a technological disparity. So the value as we think of it, we, we kind of need to start thinking of it holistically across the spectrum. It's not just about what happens when a patient enters the hospital and when they leave. It's about how the entire system sort of supports their health and, and how do we get the most value out of um, what we're putting in. Yeah which kind of moves into the whole topic of your book, which is if an organization is looking at improving the quality or the value that they provide, oftentimes it's very difficult to, to develop or to justify to, you know, administration or executives, how the, um, the amount of money that they're going to spend on a quality improvement initiative, which can sometimes be significantly expensive, (laughs) how that's going to translate into the dollars and cents improvement on the other side. Cause like you said, you know, how do you qualify or quantify a patient not going and putting a bad rate my doctor review or a Google review, or how do you, how do you rate the return on investment for them going and having a positive review on those on you know Google or something like that? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, and it's hard because you're right. I mean, a lot of the metrics that we use to define the quality of care, like patient experience, um, you know, reduction in, say, caregiver burden, um, you know, uh, happiness, satisfaction. Those are not only intangibles, but really hard to, to, to monetize. Um, you know, and so how do you justify, let's spend this much uh, money when the main outcome is something that we can't actually tie a dollar value to? And so in the book, I try and sort of toe the line between, you know, trumpeting the fact that return on investment is just one aspect of value. And if you're actually looking for the sort of overall value of um, a project or an intervention or something, you want to look at more than just the financials because these intangibles are things that are important and things that we historically have, have, we historically know are important. But at the same time, there are things that can be done in terms of when you're thinking of it and planning it to say, okay, 
how are, how am I going to be sure that this this in addition to providing these intangibles and the improvements in quality, how can I be sure that it will also demonstrate a financial gain so that it's sort of a win-win? It's a no-brainer for those who are funding it, whether it's an external funding agency or internal administration to say, yes, that'll make patients' lives better and it'll save us money in the long run. Um, and really, one of the things I try and promote is just thinking about that and, and approaching these things from the beginning in that way, as opposed to what's typically done, something's planned or it's done, and then retrospectively someone says, oh, what was the value of that? And it turns out just because of how it was done or how data was collected, the information just isn't there to be able to do a viable value assessment uh, and certainly not a return on investment calculation. So it's it's really about balancing those things but also being cognizant of them so that you can take them in, into account when you're when you're planning and thinking of doing these yeah well and i think that's probably been when i think about value-based healthcare that's probably been one of my biggest hang-ups on the idea of it is that you know, i don't know if you've if you've read any of the work on uh by mcdavitt and wilkinson about value-based pricing or even ron baker talks about it a little bit but you know, there's three components of value. One of them is revenue gains. The other is, uh, what is it, cost reduction. And then you have that whole messy gray area, which is emotional contribution to value. So yep. when, we, when we get into the weeds or get into the, like, the ins and outs of actually like, how is Medicare or CMS or whatever third party payer taking that emotional contribution to value into account when they're setting reimbursement rates? And I would contend that the answer is they're not, <laughs> at least yeah. not on the part of the patient, right? They're looking well, more at the efficiencies and, and the value for that organization. Yes, I mean, they're, they're trying. I mean, it's the HCAP survey is, you know, it's a patient survey and it's about their, you know, patient experience and ratings on those surveys will affect some of the reimbursement. But you're right. And some of this comes down to sort of basic concepts of measurement and evaluation. And I talk about this in the book too. You know, a lot of people talk about these intangible and tangible aspects. And I, and I, you know, to get more technical about it in the book, I talk about things that are measurable, monetizable, and attributable. Because tangible, intangible is a little amorphous. Whereas if you can measure it, if you can, and, and, and it's a valid and reliable measure of what you're trying to measure, you can apply some sort of uh, money uh, value to it and you can attribute it to what you've done then you can sort of include that as okay that's a result of what we did in a specific and in a and um, in a specific return that we can that we can uh, quantify one of the things that Medicare is running into for example is you know they say they tie reimbursement to rehospitalization rates well that's measurable and it's monetizable but one of the things they're running into is is it attributable you know, a lot of yeah. people will come along and say, hey, re uh, readmission rates were already decreasing or um, you can't compare our hospital to that hospital because of case mix. Even if you sort of risk adjust, it's just not fair. So depending on the, it, it, your ability to do this and assess value at its heart is really based on how good your metrics and how good your measurements are. And that's sort of way upstream to sort of establish that. And again, you know, the, the rehospitalization is sort of a favorite example of mine, because if you were to ask that individual hospital, well, what do you think is a good metric of your quality? There's no way that they would say, well, how many of our patients return in 30 days is certainly a measure of how well we did. They're going to say, there's a whole slew of things that can happen to patients uh, 
including their own behaviors and choices, which can influence whether or not they need to be, you know, come back to the hospital. Only thing we can control is what's done in our door. So it's, it's really that push and pull that Medicare is trying to figure out and those across the industry are trying to figure out. And so I just want us to have more conversations about it and try and gain a shared, you know, language and vernacular about what we're talking about when we talk about value and get people to think about some of these measurement issues and concepts um, when they're, as, as opposed to just throwing around the term value-based care. Yeah. Well, and I like that quote from your book too. You say, you know, the goal is to establish a definition or a common vernacular about what value is in healthcare. And then specifically, we need to address that or understand that for each unique case, you need a framework to operate in where an established scope and perspective will allow us to consistently and reliably identify and quantify the associated costs and benefits, which is a whole lot different than saying like, this is value-based care. You're talking like every case is different, but here's a framework that we're gonna use. So talk a little bit about the framework that you would suggest and kind of how we should think about, okay, a quality improvement initiative or even a, a clinical improvement initiative and how we begin thinking about it in terms of value across the system. Sure, I mean, so the first thing that I tell people is you have to get clear about your scope and your perspective. So the perspective is really, who are we talking about? Who ret return when it comes to return on investment? Return for whom? Um, you know, so often their groups say, "Hey, we want to figure out what the return is on this." And return for whom? For you? For patients? For payers? For administrators? Because it's going to differ depending on whose perspective you're talking. Society's benefit is it's really going to differ. And then the scope really is about you know who's included and over what time period. Uh, this can get hard because often when, especially in quality improvement, there might be an initiative, whether it's an education system or a new, you know, piece of hardware or something like that, where there's a large cost up front. But if it's doing what it's supposed to be doing and you're improving care and, you know, improving outcomes, hopefully it will do that for a long period of time. It's hopefully sustainable. So the return really is a function of how far into the future you go to sort of accumulate those benefits from that either one-time cost or sort of the, the cost plus the small maintenance cost. So what I tell people is when you think about these things, you need to think of it as, okay, on the back end, how am I going to look at this? Wh whose perspective? And if there are multiple perspectives, that's okay, but you probably want to do separate analyses. And then over what time period? Are we talking about six months, a year, 10 years? You know, what are we comfortable with and what do we think is reasonable? So, so a lot of times just starting with that will allow people to really frame what are they going to measure? How are they going to measure it? And what will it do for them? So that, that's really the first, the, the first step of it. Yeah. And some of those questions you have in your book are like, how, we, how will we define quality in this situation? How do we define value? Talk to us a little bit about, so let's say maybe a, a, a hospital group, an executive C-suite is looking at doing some sort of quality improvement initiative and they want to get you know, the ball rolling on the idea, how would you structure or lead them through this idea of determining what the quality and what the value is based off some of those questions? Yeah, that's a good question. So, and a lot of these groups, they have experience uh, thinking about quality and they over, over the years have learned that, hey, quality doesn't just mean one thing to, in one situation. We have to get specific about what does quality mean in this situation and how are we going to measure it and what data do we have available to us. And the same is true for value. 
And so I would lead them through that conversation and say, well, how, you know, how do you measure quality in this situation? What would be a, 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 um, a quality of care here? And then at the same time, you really need to talk about data at the same time. Okay, to measure that, what data would you need? Do you have that data? Can you get that data? Because, you know, a lot, like you said, a lot of these things are intangibles and it may just be not possible to have certain data. So that can adjust, okay, well, how are we going to think about uh, how we measure quality given the data that we have? And I, the example I use in the book is I say, if you think about concepts like happiness or satisfaction, if you just ask someone, well, what's satisfaction mean? They're going to talk to you about emotions and, and feelings and things like that. And then if you say, well, define satisfaction in a way that I can measure it and track it. And they say, oh, well, then we'd maybe use a Likert scale of, you know, very satisfied, somewhat satisfied, you know, that whole thing. And so you're describing it differently depending on the data that you have. And, and assessing value is no different. So you think about the data that you have, you ask yourself, how are we going to measure it? What would value be from whose perspective? Are we trying to get the patient's value, our value? Um, and then, and then, how would we actually use that data to calculate the different metrics that we that we want to look at? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think I'm I'm reading through right now, and you, you're talking about how this is done for like a a single perspective, or you're trying to do this globally? Because you're saying, like in your book, you're saying ROI primarily is a representation of monetary returns from a single perspective, while value, on the other hand, should be taking into account a wider perspective. Right. So are yeah. we looking at developing, you know, an, a measure of ROI for maybe all three stakeholders in every initiative or how, how does that look? Well, that's a good question. And I, and I think really, you know, my point in the book is that typically an ROI analysis is not done in a vacuum. It's done as part of a larger either proposal or a summary report. And in either case, you know, whether it's to motivate the fact that this should be done and should be paid for or to demonstrate that it was worth doing, you know, you're not only going to want to talk about the financial returns, but you will want to talk about the larger value. And so it's completely reasonable to say, for example, if you're going to, you know, if you were within a facility that was going to fund their own initiative, it's sort of two, two pieces uh, of, of value. You could talk about, okay, financially, here's how our, um, facility is going to be better off. Okay, we're going to increase demand. We're going to have more uh, available beds. You know, we're going to have more, a, a larger share of, you know, insurance pools, risk pools, things like that. And beyond the financial part, the overall value, we're going to improve care for patients. We're going to improve their satisfaction. We're going to improve, you know, our brand in the, you know, in the community, things like that, even though we can't measure it. So it's important to sort of put those in there at the same time that you're talking about the financial return. So you wouldn't necessarily need to do an ROI for each individual perspective. Often the perspective you're interested in is whoever's going to be paying for it, right? So yeah, yeah. If, if, you're, if you're trying to convince, you know, uh, NIH or CMS to fund something, you want to do the perspective from, from their point of view. What are they paying and what are they going to get out of it? And then when you're talking about the larger value, you not only incorporate that piece of it, but you then talk about the larger value to the system as in a whole, uh, in, in entirety, whether that's patients, providers, you know, um, the whole healthcare system, things like that. Yeah. So the ROI isn't the end all be all. And even looking at your illustration here, it's like the little puzzle piece in the corner, but there's also, you know, caregiver burden, efficiency, quality, you know, quality of life, patient outcomes, all of that kind of blends together 
to create what we call the value, right? Yeah, and I, and I think that was that's that's one of the main messages I want to get across is I think ROI and value are used interchangeably by a lot of groups, um, and I want to get away from that. You know, the the ROI is one piece of that puzzle that you described, and it's a very specific piece. You know, you you said previously value is subjective. That's true. ROI isn't, and it shouldn't be. You know, yeah. it is. You know, it, we need to have a framework that talks about it in specific terms. And that piece of it is a very objective um, calculation that we can use to assess the financial impacts of something that we're either planning to do or did. But the overall value is a larger um, comp- uh, larger piece that, that involves a lot of other things. Yeah. Well, then let's talk a little bit about, dive a little deeper into the idea of ROI as being what we're measuring. In your book, you talk about the, I think it's four challenges, right? Or the four challenges for assessing or measuring ROI for determining ROI, right? Yep. All right. Do you know them? What? Do you want to go just one, two, three, four? Or do you want to what? kind of talk about them? Why don't, you take me, why don't you take me through each one? Okay. So the first one, you say, usually several different perspectives could be considered for any given quality improvement initiative, such as those of a patient, provider, payer, society, et cetera. Right. So in this one, this is where, and you alluded to it, but this is where groups can sort of get paralyzed. They, they don't really know where to start. Uh-huh. You know, they say, well, we have, what's included? What do we gather? How, you know, how are we possibly going to quantify all these different aspects of the value of the care for all these different uh, groups? Um, and so that's why, even though ROI needs to be done from a single perspective, the challenge is that unlike perhaps in say manufacturing or sales or something like that, there inherently are other people who will um, receive benefits and incur costs. If you um, start an initiative at a facility and you're getting external funding, maybe you're doing ROI from that external funders perspective, but the physicians, the nurses, the staff who are investing time, they're incurring a cost in terms of their time. Um, and, and whether or not they receive a benefit may depend on the situation. Patients who have to sort of, you know, maybe they incur a cost in terms of lost work and lost productivity to be involved in whatever study or something like that. Those are all important aspects, but they aren't necessarily included in the ROI that you will do to justify it to the external uh, funder. And so that, that can be one of the challenges. There's just so much going on. Yeah. Well, and part of that too, like, I think in in the book you talk about, you know, how sometimes a gain in one, because there are different perspectives, is a loss for the other, right? Like decreased mm-hmm. hospital admissions is great for Medicare because they're not paying for it, but it's bad for the hospital because it means there's a revenue loss of some kind. So I, I'm assuming at some point here, you're also dealing with kind of the behavioral economics or the economics incentives created by whatever initiative they're they're thinking about doing, right? Definitely. And and that's certainly, and that's one of the difficulties of trying to incorporate everything at once is you're right. Some things that are a cost to one, one group or a benefit to the other. And those who are trying to go to value-based care have to certainly be conscious of the incentives that they're creating, even if they don't realize it. Right. So if you base your reimbursement based on some uh, relative performance, there are times when you may encourage a group to, to work really hard to stay at 95, 98% in some performance measure, whereas they're performing at 50% somewhere else, but it would take so much for them to get to a point where it would change the reimbursement that they would rather invest you know, time and effort to stay really high on the, on the one measure than in the one where they actually could 
really use the improvement. So that, those things certainly have to be juggled as you, as you think of all these. Yeah, I mean, I think that the whole point of, uh, gosh, what's his name? Hazlitt's book, The Economics of One Lesson, is all about that, right? Like yep. unintended consequences or incentives created by you know, regulation here or a rule there. Yeah, and, there, and of course, there are internal pressures, right? I mean, there's, there's internal budgets, uh, there's different regulations, there's, um, you know, and then, and then the reality that every healthcare delivery system is unique in some way. It's none of these are factories that are, you just have, your, you know, parts that can just be replaced uh, easily. So all of that has to be considered when you're, when you're thinking of these things. Yeah. So that wraps up one, which is that there's a bunch of different perspectives. The second challenge you, you note in your book is that there's, there's this notion that a good quality improvement intervention not only improves care, but it also is sustainable for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and this really speaks to the scope. So, you know, improving care is one thing. And, you know, when you have evidence-based solutions, you say, hey, this works, we know it works. Well, implementing that solution in a care delivery system is a whole nother um, ball of wax, I guess. So, you know, and there's a, whole, there's a whole industry of implementation science that looks into how to do that. And most would agree that a good intervention is one that's sustainable, one that can be, you know, continued for the foreseeable future. So if you're trying to say, well, what's the financial return? Well, as of when? Because the longer, the longer yeah. that that's sustained, the better and better and better financially it's going to look, even if you discount, um, um, you know, on a, on a yearly basis. So it, it makes it difficult to come up with well, what's an appropriate scope, what's an appropriate length of time. And that is going to differ depending on the situation and the organization and, and the, the, the project that's being implemented. Yeah. Well, and it, it, I'm assuming it also has some implications for like the, the longevity almost of something like I'm thinking like marginal utility curves or something like that, where, yeah, like the first, you know, three, four years of implementing this, the costs are really, really high and for, you know, maybe a marginal benefit, but as you get, um, as you get further out, maybe it increases or maybe it's the other way around where the first couple of years of instituting this initiative, the, the results you get are super, super high and then it kind of tapers off. So yeah, that plays a role in this, doesn't it? Certainly it does, especially if you, you know, are trying to monitor your financial return as you go. So if you have a, a, a situation where you have a large lump sum up front, and maybe there's a delay in the benefits that you're going to see, if it's an educational program, if it's, a, you know, a community outreach program, there might be weeks or even months before you actually see a tangible benefit. All that time you're incurring cost, and if you run a, you know, return uh, um, analysis on month three, you might say, Hey, we're negative 400% yeah. <laughs> on our, you know, but, but we, we're going to start gaining. So how do you manage that? And how do you sort of look at things differently so that you can say, uh, okay, well, where will we be in a year? And how do we accurately forecast that knowing that it's not a linear sort of progression? And at the same time, like you said, sometimes an educational, um, um, project, for example, there are immediate gains as people, immediately employed learnings that they got. And then over time, they kind of forget and there's sort of a marginal drop off and how effective that is. That too, well, where do you, where do you draw the line? And, and, and how do you sort of model that and sort of understand what, what's happening? There's turnover, there's you know, other policies that are put into place. And so then we get into sort of an attribution problem again as well. So there are a lot of things to sort of 
um, deal with and try and figure out as you, as you navigate this process. Yeah. Yeah. And that would be obviously the, the notion that there's um, sustainable for the foreseeable future and all that. The third, the third challenge you bring up in the book is that intangible and non-monetary benefits like quality of life and patient experience are often critical measures of success in improving the quality and efficiency of care, but they're difficult to include in a financial calculation like ROI. I think we've talked about this a little bit, but kind of expand a little more and then we'll move on. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it, and we have touched on it, but it's, it's the same idea, you know, whether or not you should do something uh, is not just a financial decision when it comes to healthcare. And there are certainly examples one could come up with where you could say it was worth doing, even if you had a negative financial result, right? If it improved care and improved the lives of, you know, a lot of people, and had a huge impact, but it just, you just not in a monetary way, you could say, well, we took a hit on that, but it was still worth it to do. So that makes it difficult. And again, comp compare that to manufacturing or sales or something like that. There's a hard stop at sort of, you know, a return of zero. Anything below that, well, why would you do it? And here in healthcare, there might be situations where a negative return, at least in the short term or even in the long term, is worth it. So that, that makes it very difficult to sort of know, you know, to answer the question a lot that a lot of groups ask, which is, well, what's a good enough ROI? What, what level should I be shooting for? And it really, unfortunately, depends on the situation. Yeah, it depends on your goal, right? Like, how do you quantify positive, <laughs> positive goodwill in the, in the community if you're right in hospitals or something? Exactly. Yeah. And then the fourth and final uh, challenge here, you state in the book, is that there is a recent push in healthcare to improve care coordination across settings and between private and community-based organizations. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so when we, if we want to accurately reflect the value that is created and also the costs, we have to know everything that happened. And as we push to increase the coordination of care and integrate, you know, inpatient care with community-based services and you know, rehabilitation and, you know, provide people with resources that they can look to and things like that. It can be really difficult to sort of incorporate information from all these organizations if you're just one of these organizations trying to assess the value of, of whatever, you know, activities you did. You may have to just estimate or make guesses at, well, you know, we have anecdotal evidence that this many people also sought out these sought out these other services, which they wouldn't have otherwise done. So that's a benefit for them, things like that. So it's it's just going to get harder as we uh, continue to sort of integrate other aspects and ancillary services uh, into care, as opposed to this is our facility. We're going to run this intervention right here. It's going to start here and stop here. It's all within the facility, and we can control and know all the benefits and costs that are within the facility. The reality is, is again, as we talk about social determinants and access to care, a lot of times these quality improvement initiatives span, you know, the entire care um, continuum, and it can be difficult to actually get and uh, accumulate the data to to really quantify that. Yeah, because like you said, you're dealing with disparate systems, oftentimes, right? Like somebody, maybe from a a different part of town might come to one hospital for one thing, but they're receiving their care at a place that's uh, their, their ancillary care, maybe at a facility that's outside of that system. And how do you mend the two or, or mesh the two to come to a calculation? Exactly. 
Exactly, exactly. And it can be difficult too. I mean, even even what's been done now, you know, for example, hospitalizations, well, a, a particular hospital may know about their facility, but they don't know about what happens at other facilities often. So it really gets into, well, well how, how are we going to uh, uh, structure it so that we can assess the value um, in, in, in the most accurate way? Yeah. All right, we got a few more minutes left, but I want to pivot to this idea of how do we how do we link value to something, right? Because value is subjective, and we can't we can't get into determining ROI, determining the quality, unless we link the idea to 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 whom is it valuable for, and then what are we going to use to measure it? So talk a little bit about um, like how we come up with the idea of measuring quality, and then using surrogates for things like patient happiness or patient satisfaction. Sure. I mean, so this this is a little bit what we talked about in terms of, you know, at the core of your ability to assess value and also quality is really kind of these these basic um, concepts of measurement and evaluation. So we, we don't actually measure quality and we don't actually measure value. We measure surrogates and our the, the ability of those surrogates to reflect what we want them to reflect uh, then informs our ability to actually truly assess quality and value. So, you know, all sorts of quality measures have been dreamed up, whether it's rehospitalizations or whether it's door to needle time for someone um, with a certain condition, whether it's length of stay in the hospital, um, you know, whatever it might be, those aren't actually, that, that's not actually quality. Those are processes or those are outcomes that someone has says, hey, that's a good surrogate, which would indicate that someone received quality care. And the same can be said for the value. So our, our goal is to come up with valid and reliable measures. And those are you know, technical terms and, and can, can cause some confusion, but really just are, are you actually able to measure what you want to measure? And how useful is that measure? Um, how, how able is it to sort of distinguish between differing levels of, of quality or value? So sometimes, when people push back on this notion of um, the value of care, what they're really pushing back on is, hey, I don't, I don't like your surrogate. I don't think that that is a viable or reasonable measure of my facility's quality or, my, or the value that we provide. I would rather use something else for the following reason. So it really is, is you know, a conversation at its, at its core about the ability of the metrics that we have available to us to sort of be surrogates for quality and measure, which are, which are, you know, not measurable things. Yeah. Well, and how do we, how do we come up with those surrogates or those, those metrics? Are they coming primarily out of the academics, out of research or kind of the quote unquote real world? Like how, how are we coming up with these surrogates? Well, that's a good question. There's a, there's a whole industry on, you know, quality measure performance. Uh, the national quality forum has standards and, Groups who develop measures go through, you know, huge pains to construct and evaluate and empirically test different measures to make sure that it's capturing what it's supposed to capture, that the measure can distinguish between groups that they know are actually different uh, to test how well that, that measure does. It's submitted to a, to a governing body like uh, the National Quality Forum who says, yes, that's a reasonable measure to use, or no, it's not. And a lot of times, you know, for, for many of these measures, there are all a million things to think about. Who should be excluded from this measure? Um, you know, whether it's a, um, 
a, a measure about cardiovascular health. Maybe you exclude people who have valvular problems because they don't apply for that. It's not reasonable to um, for them to receive the same level, the same type of care as someone uh, someone else in that group. Things like that. So the inclusions and exclusions of who's in, of, of who's in that measure. That whole process is a huge, complex, uh, ongoing program. Um, program that people have been working on for years and years and years and years. So there's no perfect way to do it. It comes from experience. It comes from expert opinion. Uh, it does come from academic research and literature, um, but it, it can be difficult to come up with those for, for sure. Yeah. Cause I'm sure that testing it too is difficult. You know, like I'm thinking about some of the research that I've been involved in at the university and the idea of like taking this surrogate and linking it to what you did and the outcomes can just, it just gets very hairy very quickly, unless you have like a, a degree in, you know, statistics or something like that, it can be way over the head of, of many folks. It, it, it's hard. I mean, and, and even within validity and reliability, there are a, a bunch of different types, you know, whether you're talking about, um, you know, if someone's abstracting information from medical record, there's test retest reliability. How, how likely is it that if two separate people, abstract that information, they're going to get the same, the same results. The, the higher that likelihood that is, the more reliable that measure is. Or, um, you know, how valid is a, is a metric? Let's link it to how people perform on this metric. Does it, does it, uh, is it associated with how, they're, how they do as an outcome? Are they more likely to get an infection or recover or whatever? Then that sort of speaks to the validity of that measure as actually measuring quality of care since it's linked to whatever outcome they get. And you're right, a lot of it is very heavy in the empirical and statistical um, parts of it. So especially the ones where you get into patient reported outcomes and yeah. you're developing questions and, and you know, they have to respond and you want to show that it's, they're actually getting at what you want them to and you have to deal with recall bias and, and all these sorts of things. There's a, there's a whole industry out there about uh, the science of, of how to do that. Yeah. Something that's way over my, uh, way over my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been great, Craig. Um, if, if you could just give somebody maybe like one or two big points that you'd want them to walk away from this conversation, what would they be? I, I think the biggest thing that I tell people is to think about the value assessment upfront. It's too often people will do a, uh, a quantum improvement initiative or something and think of it after the fact, and then they realize they don't have the data that they need to sort of assess it. So I want people to start thinking of quality and value together. They're related, uh, how they're measured, things like that. So that's, that's really the big, the big takeaway for yeah, me. It's and not the second, right? Yeah. And then, and then the second one really is the fact that, you know, value is larger than ROI and value means different things to different people. And we really need to start talking about, you know, what do we mean by value in the specific situation when we talk about it? All right, great. Well, thanks for being on the show. If people want to find out about you, about your work, maybe you want to purchase your book, where would you send them? Sure. Um, they can Google me, Craig Solid, and I'll probably be one of the top things that come up um, either on LinkedIn. My, my website is solidresearchgroup.com. And there are links to uh, the book there. You can also, it's available on Amazon. Just go to Amazon and search for return on investment for healthcare quality improvement or directly from uh, Springer. You can go to springer.com and search for the same thing. All right. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Craig Solid about return on investment and how we can justify the cost of an initiative. It might not seem initially 
a financially you know viable option or a financially viable uh, initiative to employ. I think what is most interesting to me about conversations like this is not so much the the ROI piece and the quality improvement piece, although that is important, but it's this idea of value. What is valuable? What is valuable to you? What is valuable to me are going to be different things because value is inherently subjective. And we mentioned it a little bit, in, especially in the healthcare space where there are so many stakeholders at, at play. There's payers, there's administrators, there's clinicians, and then there's the end user, the end recipient, which are the patient. And understanding all of that is hugely important when it comes to making decisions in your own clinic, in your own organization, not just from a standpoint of how do we balance what is sometimes and what can be a, opposing views or a, opposing points of value for different stakeholders in order to develop some sort of system or some sort of method that delivers care that it's a that's of substantial quality that's of at least clinically competent quality that's going to get the outcomes that we desire but in a way that is seemed as valuable by the end user and doable and again valuable and probably fulfilling on the side of the clinicians it's just it's the whole topic is very interesting to me, and I think we, we as healthcare providers, healthcare administrators, spend a, a lot of time understanding the financial numbers. We understand, at a very basic level, the ROI, if you would, of implementing some kind of initiative. But when you take into account, one, the different stakeholders, and then two, that subjective piece, that value is subjective and it is going to vary depending on which stakeholder is looking at an initiative or looking at an, at an outcome, it makes it a whole lot more murky. It makes it a whole lot more interesting. Humans are complex beings, right? So that's all I got to say about that. If you like the show, head on over to iTunes, give us a rating and review. It helps people find us, helps spread the message, helps spread the show around. You can head on over to www.betteroutcomes.show, and there you can see all of our past episodes, connect with all of our guests. There's links to their websites, their LinkedIn's, Twitter's in some cases. Um, you can also sign up for the newsletter there, and what we do is we shoot out an email every time we post uh, a new episode, and that way you don't miss it. Or you can find us on any one of your favorite podcast players, Stitcher, iTunes, Castbox. What are the other ones? It seems like they're popping up like weeds. All right, folks. Until the next episode, be safe, be healthy. I will talk to you then. Thanks for listening to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients, helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www.RehabUPracticeSolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.